This week is week two of a five-part series based on Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Last week we read the parable and we talked about what it means generally to be a Good Samaritan in the world. And so for the next few weeks we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be a Good Samaritan in terms of justice? What does it mean to be a Good Samaritan to the poor? And then finally, what does it mean to be a Good Samaritan to our planet? This week, we look at what does it mean to be a Good Samaritan to those that are sick? And uh, how can we be a healing presence in this world? And so our text is an interesting one. It is actually a miracle within a miracle. You'll see what uh, we mean here as we read Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. And immediately the hemorrhage ceased and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone forth from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had been done to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring that, they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, he saw a tumult and people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the girl got up and walked. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Heard about a man who had a huge presence in social media. He had a thousand friends on his Facebook page. And uh, when he would post something, he got hundreds and hundreds of comments, thoughts. But when he posted that he had been diagnosed with leukemia, he found that 
fewer than 50% of his friends even bothered to respond at all. Often at the point of our greatest need, we fail each other miserably. And one of the places we do that is when people become sick. So when I speak today of caring for the sick, I want to share a few assumptions that I bring with me. Disease is never caused by God. God does not cause someone to get cancer or have a heart attack. That is not the will of God in this world. God does not create our pain or our tears, but he does promise to finally dry our tears and make our bodies brand new someday. God is at war with disease, which temporarily sets back his will that we have life and have it in abundance. And God's weapons against illness is our hands and our hearts. That's God's weapons in this world. I remember listening to a report on NPR about religion in Europe. And as you probably know, most of the countries of Europe are tremendously secularized. Religious faith there is at a very low level in Germany or France or England. Less than 10% of the people go to church. But there's one exception, Poland. Over 80% of the people in Poland go to church regularly. The Catholic Church is thriving there. The seminaries are full of young men who want to become priests. And I heard the story of one priest there who was talking about his church, and his church had been bombed during World War II, and the statue of Jesus had fallen over and it, one of those statues where Jesus is sort of standing there like, like that with his hands out. And his hands broke off and his face got chipped. Well, they fixed his face, but they decided to leave the hands just as they were as a reminder to everyone in the church that you are Christ's hands and feet in this world. You are the hands that Christ has to minister to those who are sick You are God's answered prayer to people who are sick. You can't help everyone, but you can help one. And if everyone helped one, then everyone would have what they need. Probably the biggest danger in doing this good in the world, of being a good Samaritan, is it's so easy to, to let the enormity of the problems of the world convince us that we can't make any difference. It's easy to let the hugeness of the problems, the the number of people and all the, to to say, well, what does it matter? What can I really do? When we think of the number of people who have been killed in wars, like the war in the Congo that's gone on for 20 years, we think, you know, during the height of the AIDS crisis, you know, 5,000 people a day died of AIDS. That's amazing. When we think that still to this day, Over 10,000 children die every day of preventable diseases, malaria, tuberculosis, and diarrhea. Diarrhea is the third highest cause of death in children. How many people here have had diarrhea? Can we see the hands? Some of you are lying. (laughs) We didn't die. We didn't die from it. And the fact is, there is an oral hydration treatment which costs less than a dollar that can save a child's life. 
to have diarrhea. It's, it's available, it's out there. But there are so many that sometimes it's easy to get overwhelmed and to feel that we can't do it. But on every human being, there is a price tag on their forehead. And that price was put there by God. And it says priceless. And that means we can never afford to be overwhelmed. Dr. Francis Collins is the, uh, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. He's a medical doctor, scientist. And he's also a, uh, a Christian. He got, attends a Presbyterian church. And he went with his church on a mission trip to Nigeria. And he was working there doing, as a doctor, as a volunteer doctor, in, in a terribly run-down hospital. They, they didn't have the, the right supply, the, the medicines, all that kind of stuff. It was a very discouraging kind of a place, and he was getting very depressed, uh, he felt, and, and feeling like they weren't getting anywhere, and uh, wondering why he was there, really. And, and one of the men that he was seeing, one of his patients, somehow sensed that feeling in Dr. Collins. And he asked him the question, he said, I bet you're wondering why you're here. And Francis Collins said, yes, that's exactly what I've been wondering. Why am I here? And the man smiled and he said, you're here for me. You're here for me. And somehow just that one person saying that one thing changed the way that he felt about being there and what he was doing and made the trip, that long trip, worth the distance. Last week I shared with you the words of Helen Keller. She said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And I will not let the thing I cannot do prevent me from doing the thing that I can do. Let's talk a little bit about some tips as to what we can do when we're trying to help people who are sick. Collected a few suggestions uh, here that people who are professionals in this uh, know. They, su they suggest, for example, when you visit a person who's sick, don't ask, how are you? Because the answer is, not good, I'm sick. It's better to ask something like, how's the day today? How's that going? It's okay for you to say that you don't know what to say. To admit that. You don't know what to say. You're just there because I love you and want to encourage you and I'm not sure what to say with this news that you have given me. Remember, silence is golden. Trust it, don't kill it. Oftentimes, just coming in and sitting down in a chair by a person who is sick, that silence presence is often the most important and meaningful gift that you can give, even more important than words. When it comes to visiting the sick, like a good speech, be sincere, be brief, and be gone. You, can communi you communicate a lot to a, a sleeping patient by leaving a note, just as much as if you talk to them. Leaving a note shows that you came and you cared. Don't give advice. The fact that your uncle had the same problem doesn't really mean anything. You're not there to cheer people up, but to be present. Never say, I know exactly how you feel. Because we don't, really. We can never really know exactly how another person feels. Remember the book of Job, when the suffering, the terrible suffering came into his life? His friends came, and for a week they were great. They just were with him. They hung out with him. But then the silence was too uncomfortable, 
and they became theologians and therapists. And that is when they ceased to be a comfort and became a case study for poor pastoral care. William Sloan Coffin was a pastor at Riverside Church in New York for many years, and he became good friends with Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who was a leading Jewish scholar and taught in the seminary there. They were good friends, but there was a time when they didn't see each other for quite a while. And then they ran into each other on the street. And Abraham says, Bill, what's been going on? What have you been doing? And Bill Coffin said, well, Abraham, I've been going through a very terrible divorce. It's been a really tough time. And Abraham said, Bill, why didn't you call me? He said, well, what, what, what would you have done? He said, I would have come over and cried with you. I would have come and cried with you. That's the best that we can do. We are never more like God than we, when we cry with other people. We help just by being there. Terry Anderson and Terry Waite were the two of the men who were taken as hostages in Lebanon. They were held for months and months and months and months there. Terry Anderson got sick at one time and in his book that he wrote when he got, got out. He said, Terry Waite stayed by my bed all night. And that presence made all the difference in the world. He said that after his release. Just being present, praying for people, caring for them. My daughter Mackenzie went with Scott Kale and the young people of this church when she was in high school. She went to Malawi on one of our mission trips. And uh, they, they did that one particular day. Their job was to go out with the nurses from Ambanguini Hospital out into the bush where they were doing these rural clinics. And part of the rural clinic was that they were encouraging everyone to get tested for AIDS, to find out your AIDS status. And they had a test where just within a couple hours, they could tell people whether they had AIDS or not. And that day, Mackenzie and a couple of the other kids were there helping the nurses. They, they, they tested 20 women in the clinic that day. And at the end of the day, they found out that one of them, number 13, was positive, HIV positive. And they had to bring her into the van, and the nurses sat down with her and explained to her the situation. Kenzie said, Dad, that night, you know, when we had our little session with Scott and we talked about the day and debriefed and, and did our little Bible study and prayer time, every one of us prayed for number 13. God help number 13 be with her. When we lift up other people in prayer, we are doing a holy thing. And it's part of our job in this world to be people of prayer. You know, when you go to the hospital in Africa, did you know that you have to take caregivers with you? One or even more caregivers. Because hospitals in Africa don't serve food. So there's a building called the Caregiver's Hut which is an outside building where they have fires, where they make the food, and they take it to the, to, to the loved one. So in an African hospital, between every bed are people sitting on the floor. They're the caregivers. They're family and friends of the person who is sick. And I'm sure it's not terribly hygienic, you know, um, 
But I can tell you, there's something about being surrounded by people who love and care for you that makes it a little bit easier to be sick. I think it's preferable to some of the quiet, cold, isolated rooms that I walk into in America when somebody's in the hospital. And there's nobody there. They're by themselves. They're all alone. I think it might be a better idea to be surrounded by people of love in those difficult times. The church has done a lot of bad things in its 2,000 years. We've got the Inquisition, we've got the Crusades, we've got terrible religious wars. But the one thing that we have done that's the best is to start hospitals all around the world in the name of Jesus Christ. Any country that you can go to, you will find Christians there who are a healing presence, who are doing the, the, continuing the work of Jesus Christ to heal people in his name. When Bono went to Willow Creek Church, he said, uh, I want you to know that without you, millions of Africans would not be on antiretroviral drugs. Without you, we wouldn't be beating malaria in Kenya and Rwanda and other places. We're getting very close to a vaccine on malaria. They're testing it right now in Africa. Without you, this just isn't possible. So for all the people who can't be in this room to thank you, I want to say thank you on their behalf. I want to say thank you to you on behalf of all the people that were affected by the alternative gift market. Look at that list of things in your bulletin there. All those good things. And I'd like to thank you for all those people. We can't solve the AIDS crisis or cure malaria, but we can start right where we are in continuing Christ's ministry to the sick. I'll give you a homework assignment for this afternoon. Think of somebody in your sphere of influence. That means your work, your neighborhood, your friends, your family. Can you think of somebody you know of who's sick? Maybe it's not a, a full, horrible disease, but maybe it's just a chronic problem which, which really affects their life. Think of somebody who is sick that you know of. Write their name down and prayerfully answer these three questions. What needs do I see in that person's life? Two, what can I pray for on his or her behalf? And three, what action can I take to help? To be Christ's hands and feet in the world, we have to start somewhere. Why not here? To be Christ's hands and feet in the world, we have to start someday. Why not today? There's a Ugandan saying that says, one plus one becomes a bundle. One compassionate heart, one act of mercy, one trip to see someone in need, one generous check, one person and then one more and then one more, and it starts to form a bundle of compassion and kindness and good that can make a significant difference in the world of darkness and suffering like our own. Some people call it the tipping point. Amen.